Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. And I'm Eric Toms, writer-director whose first film, Bakersfield Noir, will be out later this year. Boom. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 156 with producer Jeffrey Allard from May 2018, who came on the show to talk about his prolific career producing indie feature films. Our work together on The Alternate, he was my producer on The Alternate at the time, and that was like, even before we'd shot the proof of concept, so it was like way early in the process. So that was, uh, it was fun that we had him on there, but it was like just before we had really done a lot of work on it. Although at the time I felt like we had done a ton. And then we talk a lot about a lot of the things as well. And, you know, including, can't remember exactly, but like lots of fun stuff. I thought this was a good pairing for David because I imagine Jeff as some sort of a future David in some way with the amount of films he has produced and the amount of films that David is sure to produce in his career. Like, I don't think, I think David's probably produced like six or seven features, maybe eight you know, something around there, maybe 10. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. But Jeff's like at 26 or something now. Holy this guy is, is like a freaking beast. When we when we started making the alternate, it was like 2021. But he's made like five movies since then. Good uh, Lord. It's crazy. He, he will not stop. It's amazing. But before we get to uh, the conversation with Jeff, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first... Don't forget to check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is where you can support the show, keep us going. $1.99 will get access to all our uh, back catalog of episodes. Uh, we're at episode 429 now, but we're, you know, when we get to 450, you're only going to have episodes 400 and onward to listen to. Right now, you've got 350 and onward, but like, yeah, coming up in just 20 episodes. Woo, we're going to have a lot less. So if you want to hear everything we've already done, watch, listen to the whole show from beginning to end, you can do that on Patreon. But without any other further bibble babble, here's our throwback interview with Jeffrey Allard. So this week we have another guest, indie film producer Jeffrey Allard on the show. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, guys. I'm really glad to be here. Good to be chatting with you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So just a, a little bit of background. So Jeff's actually my producer on The Alternate, um, and we've been working together <laughs> for a few months now, I guess, maybe three months or so. Yeah, um, it seems like years, but yes, I think it's just three months. <laughs> right. What have you guys been doing together for the past three months? Uh, Jeff, do you want to take that? <laughs> sure. We've, uh, you know, after I read the script and said, yeah, I'd be happy to come on. I really like what uh, Ulrich wrote and the concept. We've been in the development phase of raising money, which is the most important part to filmmaking. Right. I always see that in development on like IMDb. What what officially makes something in development? In development is before pre-production, and it's it's usually it's usually two things. It's it's working on the script uh, and or raising the money. In an indie filmmaking, it's 
almost always raising the money means we don't have the money yet to make the movie yeah so for us what it's meant mostly is like you know going to these meetings um doing our little spiel little little talk about the movie i I don't talk a lot oftentimes it's mostly jeff doing the talking because all the questions are business related for the most part and yeah and then we just see see what people say and it's been i think it's been going well i don't know i mean i I have no experience in this at all right this is the first time i've ever done anything like this so jeff i don't know you could tell me is this like typical or we about average with our success rate so far this is about average um you know oftentimes projects come in where a lot of the money or a good portion of the money is in place and that's really helpful and you know, kind of elevating the project, giving it momentum. And we came to the table when we, you and I started working on this, we had, you know, not a lot of money. And so we're still trying to gain that momentum. And, uh, you know, we've had some successful meetings. We've uh, closed, what, two deals so far. Yeah, and, two. Um, yeah. yeah, well along the way. So not awesome. bad. So I feel good I'm about it. I'm glad to hear you're not discouraged. <laughs> if, I, if I were, I probably wouldn't be in this business. And and to be honest, I've had other projects where we were this far along and hadn't closed any deals yet. So uh, yeah, uh, it's a good sign. At what point? I'm I'm totally jumping ahead. After this, this will be my last question. Then we need to set set up what we're going to talk about today. But how do you know when to stop? developing a project and just to move on and say, this is never going to happen. You know, um, I've had projects that have gone on years. So what I do is let the the creative guy, the director who's driving the project, because I'm typically not driving them. I'm brought in to produce the projects and I let them continue their efforts as long as they want. And I have multiple projects always going on. So I'll kind of be there standing by when he needs me. Right. But do do they ever actually say to you, hey, Jeff, I'm done. This is it. Or does it just kind of fade away they, like, like a relationship? They, they fade away, typically. I've never actually had someone throw in the <laughs> yeah. towel, but all of a sudden the calls come less frequently and and I get the message. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so Ulrich, please. Anyways. I'm so happy to have Jeff on the podcast <laughs> yeah. and be talking to him. I've, I've actually never met you, which is seems crazy, but it's good to meet you over the podcast and I'm interested, Ulrich, what are we going to be talking about today with Jeff. So, you know, I want Jeff to give us his, you know, one minute bio, a background of what he's done and everything. But, you know, based on his history and his experience, I think it's really the best just to kind of focus on the business of filmmaking. Awesome. Talk about like the nuts and bolts of how he makes movies, how he gets movies put together and how it's worked for his career. I mean, you know, I'll let Jeff give his bio, but he's made like over 14 movies in the span of what, like 15, 16 years or something like that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty impressive um but jeff can you just quickly give us your a bio of who you are and in what you do and all that stuff yeah absolutely i've uh my first film was uh 2003 i produced the the texas chainsaw massacre remake with jessica beale starring jessica beale i co-produced that with um michael bay and after that you know i got hooked in the business it was also a very profitable film. It was my first film, and I said, "Damn, this is really easy." And then I did the the prequel because I I signed a two picture deal when I optioned the rights, and we did the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning in two thousand six, and uh, we did really well on that one. Uh, both those films combined grossed over two hundred million dollars. So easy, right? Yeah, it was so easy. I go, this is 
this is awesome. This is what I'll do. And well, after that, it beca- I realized how hard it is. And the economics of the business changed quite a bit since the 2000s mm. to what oh, we are yeah, right now, absolutely. early 2000s. And, uh, you know, my budgets keep going lower and lower because we're competing with so much content out there. And you can't always count on having a studio backing your film. So I've gotten creative and have kind of a, a, a formula for the movies that I do, which are mostly genre, but I've been going outside of the genre box as well. Um, prior to that. And you're based in San Francisco? I'm based in San Francisco, just south of the city in a town called Belmont. I've only shot one movie in the Bay Area called The Violent Kind, which uh, premiered at Sundance and then we got picked up for worldwide distribution. But uh, most of my movies, I'm able to commute, you know, to wherever I shoot is where I spend most of my time. And, you know, from San Francisco to Los Angeles, there's a flight every hour and I can get down there for meetings. So I'm based out of here in Los Angeles every six to eight weeks, uh, then on set wherever we're shooting, which is, you know, sometimes in Los Angeles, but I also chase a lot of the tax incentives. So I just got back from Kentucky late last year and shot a movie called Starlight where we took advantage of their generous uh, rebate. That's awesome. Well, can you rewind all the way back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre? How did you get to that point where you're able to produce a movie with Michael Bay? Like, yeah. what was your background? Yeah. So prior to that, I was in the banking and finance business for 18 years. And uh, I was with a company called Bayview Bank, which is a large regional bank acquired by U.S. Bank Corps back in early 2000. And I was president of one of the uh, asset-based lending groups. And we were, you know, we were doing well. I enjoyed the business, uh, ran, you know, a division of a $5 billion bank. And we went through one of those uh credit crunch crises, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and Bayview Bank found itself in a position where we had to get bought out by a larger bank and absorbed. And so they shut down my group. And, you know, I was in the, the finance business for quite a while. And I was like, well, you know, I presumed I would continue that. Well, I had a friend from college, his name's uh, Mike Fleiss, and he was he created the Bachelor TV series. And so he called me at the time and he was just uh, going to start The Bachelor, and but he also wanted to get in the film business. So he reached out to me and said, hey, let's, let's get into the film business. You're, you have the banking business background. I've got the Hollywood connections. Let's team up and do something. I said, sure, why not? You know, it sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, I, you know, after I left the bank, I had a nice parachute had some time off and the um you know we started looking at scripts basically and i said well you know if we're going to do something you know my first project i'd you know really like it to be successful which is harder you know to do than actually uh you know than it sounds and and i said why are we looking at original screenplays and we read about a hundred of them i said can we buy something that has some sort of franchise value, some already existing recognition. And uh, he said, well, I know the guys who own the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So he introduced me to them. And I got to know them, Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper recently passed away. You know, rest in peace, Toby. Really great guy. And uh, I was 
became friends with them over a year. They were very wary about working with large studios. I pitched them about doing an independent feature film that I would have Toby direct the film. We would use their script and we closed the deal. And, you know, the agency CAA, who is representing Mike Fleiss, didn't want to have anything to do with it. They thought it was, this is a far-fetched idea. You're never going to close a deal. So I read up on, you know, the film business. I already had, you know, contract experience running a division of a bank. And I created, drafted a contract, got the two to sign them. And those contracts carried through all the way to production. But when I closed that deal, uh, literally a week later, Michael Bay called me and said, I heard you have the rights to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. The power of the IP, right? That's right. You have That's the right, right IP. You get the phone calls. Yeah. And uh, I said, I do. And I, he invited me over to his house in Bel Air, a nice mansion. And uh, I showed up. And there were six people there, but Michael wasn't there. Oh. <laughs> and they said, uh, oh, he's going to be here. He's running late. He's on the golf course. And he had uh, three of his agents slash manager, uh, an attorney, and uh, two other people. I forget who they were. But the attorney spent a little time with me asking me, how, basically vetting the process of how I got the rights. And I articulated the steps and he goes, oh, that makes all good sense. And who's attached to it, et cetera. And I said, no one's attached to it. And then Michael Bay showed up and his attorney said, yeah, thumbs up. It looks good. And then Michael Bay <laughs> proceeded to pitch me for about half an hour and how this movie is going to be made. Yeah. Oh, wow. That must have been fun. It was. It was fun. <laughs> and I was like, OK. Uh, and then the next morning after the meeting, his agent called and said, you know, the meeting went really well. I loved you. He really would like to work with you. And then the next morning, his attorney called me at seven in the morning. And that doesn't happen in L.A. You know, L.A. starts late and ends late. And so I was like, oh, that's pretty odd. And they said, we want to make you a preemptive offer. We're going to be emailing it to you, you know, literally in 30 minutes. And they made us made me an offer, Mike and I an offer, an offer we couldn't refuse. And there <laughs> <Wow>. So <laughs> when Michael, he pitched to you the, the way that the movie was going to be made, he was doing that as a producer? As a producer. So he started a company called Platinum Dunes, which mm -hmm. now does genre remakes. And it's been extremely successful. Um, you know, a la Jason Blum, probably more successful than Jason Blum. If you look up the, the franchises they wow. brought back to the screen. Yeah. Um, but so he pitched me actually on a trailer. He said, because obviously he just, you know, he knew he, he rewatched the movie. There was no screenplay, but he said, here's, here's what we should do. And he pitched me on a trailer and uh, the trailer actually came out to be exactly as he pitched me on it. This is nine months later. <laughs> yeah. He wow. says, we're going to do this trailer. This is what I envisioned. And then we're going to raise the money because of that. And then we'll make the movie. Wait, and really? Is that down. how you guys raised the money is you made a trailer first? We did. We, wow. we went to AFM with a trailer with no script, no attachments other than Michael Bay producing the Texas Chainsaw. Oh, wow. So you didn't even have Crazy. the cast of the movie in it. We did not. We didn't have, so, have a script. Oh. And what, what did that trailer look like? So it was more of an audio trailer. It was a, it was a trailer. But so it, it he said, all right, here's how it's going to be. Picture yourself in a big theater with 5-1 uh, surround sound. It's pitch dark. 
and you're looking at the screen and you hear nothing and all of a sudden you hear a door open and slam shut and you hear this woman in distress and she's out of breath and all of a sudden she starts running around the room in surround sound, 5-1 surround sound, and she's running around the room and all of a sudden she's behind you and it's still pitch dark and then you hear the door open again and slam shut and you hear something, some person that obviously is a big guy starting to chase her around the room and he chases her around the room and she's running around towards the front and they end up to the front together and she screams and then you hear a chainsaw revving up and then it cuts through the screen and it says rolls Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that's that was <laughs> nice. his pitch. Wow. And that's actually how it went down. He spent seventy five thousand wow. dollars. So how do you show a trailer like that though at AFM? Do you is it in the side of a theater? It was uh, at AFM. We rented uh, one of the theaters, or it was one of the screening rooms, and uh, we had you know regular theater seats in there, and we had buyers from all across the world. I was there. Uh, Michael Bay was there. Actually, Michael could make attend that. He was on a trip with his girlfriend to somewhere in the Caribbean that he promised to take her. So we were there with our sales agent and um, Radar Pictures, Ted Fields, who's also a prolific producer, financed part of the picture. And he was there during the development process, giving us money for the trailer and things we needed to get to the point of pre-production. And he was there hosting the uh, screening. And so it was, it was just like that. It was dark. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and it came around, <laughs> and, and we sold out worldwide uh, through Good Machine, which is now Focus Features, and, mm-hmm. and we sold uh, internationally in excess of $8 million based wow. on that pitch. So wow. you had this great experience with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you're like, this is it, this is what I'm doing, but was it based on the money aspect of it because you came from banking or were you interested in the art of filmmaking or just like the fun of just being part of movies what was it that kept you going yeah it was kind of all three of it uh it was you know i needed to keep myself occupied and continue to pay the rent so i i wanted to do something that could do that um making movies you know as a young kid who didn't want to be in movies or make movies so I never thought about that until my uh, producing partner, Mike, called me about the the idea. And I had attended a couple of the sessions with him on the the Bachelor series. And I thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. And um, so it was that. And... Mainly, I guess those two things, you know, the yeah. uh, the idea of making movies and, and also making money at making a living from it. So those movies were like based off of a huge franchise. And now you're working on Ulrich's movie, which is an original script. <laughs> and I'm curious <laughs> <Yes>. to know... <laughs> You know, has a business shifted to a point where like now uh, original there is a market for original scripts or it's just it's hard to reproduce that kind of success? Like, I guess, where's your head at when it comes to original content? Right. So I do all original content now trying to uh, secure a, uh, the rights to a franchise film is, is almost impossible. And I got really lucky meeting the Texas Chainsaw Massacre owners, who, by the way, were actually suing each other, and I had to settle that lawsuit to clear the rights on this. <laughs> and that's part of what I do. I do a fair amount of negotiating and arbitration. So I, 
I befriended both sides of the, the, the parties that own the rights and was able to settle that out. But that is rare. Most of the rights are owned either by studios or publishers or people that have right. ideas of making huge movies. And so, yeah, so I've drifted to doing uh, original content and uh, been doing mostly uh, genre in the horror area because of, you know, they, people don't know me, but they know from the executive producer of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that gets put on most of the <laughs> right. DVD cases that I, for movies that I do. Yeah. Uh, but I've also... It's a good calling card. It, it is. It is. It's like having a free, you know, recognizable actor attached to your movie when you put that on your DVD. So I'm doing mostly that, but I've recently... Uh, doing my first documentary, which we won the three, our first three festivals is called The Push. Uh, actually, I have a couple of distribution offers on the table right now that I'll be going through after this podcast. Uh, I did a movie with Susan Sarandon called Ping Pong Summer. Uh, you know, obviously, she's a multi Oscar winner. And that was a, a, a family comedy, which had a theatrical release two years ago. I did a movie with Monique, another Oscar winner. Um, that came out about a year ago or so, and that was a, uh, a drama. And so I'm doing it works outside of horror, but uh, I'd say still, you know, two out of every three projects that I look at, maybe three out of four are horror-based. Okay. Well, nice. how do these things come together? Like, how do you find scripts, and then what do you do once you have the script? Did you try to, I guess, Ulrich has some questions here that I, I like about um, like pre-sales, like foreign sales. Is that like still something that happens, foreign pre-sales or any other pre-sales based on just the, your name attached to it? Like how's, how do you pull a movie from right, a script right. off the ground? So most of my projects, I mean, I, I get, I look at so many scripts every month. And I, I'm, you know, I'd say, you know, 50 projects are submitted to me a month, but I, most of those I actually don't read. And for various reasons, I'll look at the synopsis or the packaging and say, no, I'm not interested. But the way these pa these movies typically get done, all my movies get done outside of the, the two or three studio projects that I've done have been through private investor financing. Uh, Pre-sales uh, back in the 90s, in 2000, early 2000, there was a pretty robust pre-sale market, but for various reasons, I can explain why later, but uh, that market has really diminished. Unless you've got a talent attached, uh, major recognizable talent, and it's a genre picture, um, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to get a pre-sale, especially on the lower budget projects, projects under a million dollars. And that's where mostly my recent projects, uh, you know, 90% of my projects now are under a million dollars. Have you ever done a movie where you had pre-sales um, as part of the financing? Outside of my Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, one was a negative pickup where the studio actually committed to financing the project before we got into production. And then the, the original one was a, we had pre-sales, which we then took the commitments to a bank and finance those pre-sale commitments. My other projects have only had pre-sale promises, but not bankable commitments. So they, my foreign distributors or foreign sales agents would come to me and say, yeah, we can probably get you X dollars based on the cast that you have and the script that you have, but it's not bankable. You, it, it's, it's just like, this is our estimate 
but there are no guarantees. And it helps with private individual financiers because I can show them a piece of paper saying, hey, we think we can get this amount and we're only trying to raise X dollars. So we probably have almost 100% coverage from these estimates on foreign sales. But if you actually go to a bank, uh, they will not loan against that because those are not right. guarantees. And does that still happen? Um, will foreign sales, uh, you know, agents still do that for you? You know, just like take a look at your, your cash, your package and be like, yeah, yeah, we can, we think our MG will be this amount or, or right. whatever. So they will do that. They will give me foreign estimates. They will not, in most cases, give an MG, a minimum guarantee. But what I'm finding from the foreign estimates is they will provide an estimate on every territory. Oh, wow. Available. And they'll give you a range of, you know, say for Germany, it could be 25,000, it could be 100,000, you know, so they give you a low end and a high end. And what happens is, my guys typically hit their numbers somewhere between that low and high end, typically closer to the lower end. But what happens also is they sell seven of the 40 territories that they've given you estimates on. So you have to know which territories are actually going to sell. No one knows uh, in advance. And you don't get all those territorial sales. You'll typically get a fraction of what they give estimates on. Yeah, wow. So what we've heard a lot as directors and filmmakers, and I'm sure a lot of other people listening have heard the same thing, is that, you know, in order to make a movie, the way that it works is you, you find a great script, you pair it with a movie star, and the best director that you can find, and then you, then you do the whole pre-sale thing, you know, which you just said you haven't really done before. But have you ever, like, made a movie, besides the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, have you ever made a movie in that fashion, like just trying to get the biggest star with the best script kind of thing? No, that that's the studio model, and they can do that, and they can spend millions of dollars on projects just to develop it, and and then they can, you know, green light a project based on the script alone, and 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 then guarantee a talent with a pay or play package. If you come on board, we'll pay you X X dollars. You know, so outside of that arena, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, what typically happens is a director will approach me with a script and say, here's, you know, this is a great script for this reason. I want to do this project and, you know, I'm directing it. And it's usually that's that's how a project's presented to me. Rarely is it just a script alone and, and, and am I asked to find a director? Uh, that does happen though sometimes. But uh, it's usually a director and a script, and then I'll buy into that vision and say, yeah, okay, let's do that. I mean, it's similar to how you and I are working together. You're, you're directing it. You wrote it. You're, you're already a package here, and then it's about getting the financing in place. And as we get closer to the financing, the casting then kicks in. Because at our level, when you're doing you know these indie-sized movies under a million dollars or aren't too many, you know, recognizable talent that can really move the needle. I mean, these are names you might see from TV, but still, you know, whether it's a distributor or a, a single investor, they won't typically go, oh my God, that person is so famous, you know, I'll just put up this money. Uh, or a distributor will tell me that that will sell the movie for your budget. Uh, the players that we're typically going after are you know, somewhat recognizable or usually on TV series, uh, might have done a number of movies, but not as the lead. And you can get those guys amazingly for relatively cheaply. 
but we don't make those offers until we have the money in place. Yeah. And have you ever done the whole letter of intent thing where you've, you know, gone after an actor, pursued them before you had the budget, secured like a letter of intent from them that they'll be in your movie and then use that to raise funds? Like, have you ever done that process? I have been involved in that where the director has already brought in his friends that are you know, somewhat recognizable talent, but none of them, again, could really bank the movie. So I've done that. I found it hasn't really made a difference. So I will not do that because I feel like it's extra work that isn't meaningful in the the fundraising process. And uh, those letter of intents really are only worth the paper it's written on because if you don't have a date, uh, you don't specifically have a rate that you've offered to them, you actually don't know that whether or not they're going to be in the film. But, you know, the point of that LOI is to help raise money. And I find that that hasn't been helpful. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, because the, these are these questions, these are like a lot of the things that uh, we're told to do as filmmakers is, uh, you know, get an LOI for a well-known actor, um, you know, attaching the project and then the money is easy to find. You know, I've heard that like, you know, a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also heard the whole pre-sale thing a million times that like, that's what I should be doing, you know, but then obviously it sounds like those things don't really necessarily apply. I mean, with the LOI thing applies more to independent filmmaking, but it sounds like the other route is more of a studio deal. You know? it, it is, you know, if you have Tom Cruise, you can get pre-sales, but for the typical movies that are even under $10 million and some of them have been successful pre-sale routes typically weren't done aren't, aren't done to finance those movies. Cause, uh, it's, it's, um, look at, um, moonlight, you know, uh, uh, Fruitvale Station. Both those were done with private investor equity. Those movies originally, you, you couldn't have gone to distributor and said, hey, read this script, read who we might have in the movie and give me, you know, X million dollars. I mean, both those <laughs> right. movies were done for about a million to two million dollars and it, it wouldn't happen. Now, after the fact, they would have said, oh, would have loved to have done that. But that's the typical movie that gets, you know, submitted to distributors and no one will be willing to say guarantee a million dollars on those types of projects. Right. Yeah. We all have this dream that we're going to write a script and we're going to go to, let's say, AFM. I think Ulrich has even done this. <laughs> yes. and, and you're going to find a producer that's going to jump on board and all your dreams are going to come true. They're going to help find the financing. They're going to help get you name actors attached to the script. But you know, I'm looking at the setup that you and Ulrich have, and it seems like you're on board to produce the movie as long as Ulrich can help get the funding. So you aside, couldn't Ulrich just go raise the money himself and go produce the film himself? I'm wondering, like, what's your role on the film if you're producing it, but Ulrich could also produce it himself? Like, what's the value that you bring to it? Right. So I, I do more than just say, I'll produce it if you finance it. Um, and Ulrich can talk about it as well. But my background in banking and finance, uh, plus my track record on doing, you know, over a dozen movies, all of which got in distribution, adds this extra level of comfort to investors when we're meeting with them. And I've been with Ulrich and all right of the meetings, I think, since he brought me on, since we decided to partner on this project. So uh, 
Ulrich earlier mentioned, I do most of the talking in the meetings is because these investors are asking <laughs> yeah. about the money. How does distribution work? Right. Investors care about the return on their investment, not necessarily the creative vision of the project. Exactly. And so Ulrich has his book out ready to talk about the creative vision. But I'd say 80 percent of the questions come to me because they're like, well, how does the money work? You know, who gets paid? How do we get paid? When do we get paid? You know, what's the likelihood of us getting paid? Right. So it has a lot to do with like, all right, Ulrich can make the movie, but then once the movie is made, how does it, that turn into a business? And you can answer those questions. Exactly. And then I do physical production, though. So I, I'll i do the budgeting. I actually hire a crew. I've hired them on almost all my projects. I negotiate with talent. I negotiate with their representation. So during the physical production as well, I bring all that to the table where most of my directors like, I don't know how to deal with CAA or <laughs> UTA. I don't what's the what's the offer we should make and what type of contract and they want this, this and this. Is this reasonable? And right. so I, I deal with yeah, that, that and experience. It's, it's, yeah. And it's a pain in the ass. It's one yeah. of the least pleasant things I have to do during production is dealing with talent. Not talent, but their representation. Yeah, and more so. I mean, because, you know, Jeff's made all these movies and, like, he does the physical production. And, you know, I've made short films and I know I can make a movie and all that stuff, too. But just because I know it doesn't mean anyone else knows it. And I think with Jeff on the project, it's like he's the the proof. He's right, the legitimacy um, to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's made movies that you've seen. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's made movies that, ha- that you have seen and that have made money and that have been in the theater and that have played at these big film festivals. And not just one not just two not just three but you know over a dozen yeah so it's like his track record is really like the gosh i can't think of the word right now but like it's like the legitimacy to the project right you know that like makes people believe that i will act we'll actually do what we say we're gonna do but there's a certain degree jeff that your name is on a project and you want to maintain you know your reputation so how do you ensure that the movie that gets made isn't gonna make you look bad like what are some of the things that you have to do in order to feel comfortable and have you told Ulrich like in order to do this we need to use this DP or this group of people like maybe people that Ulrich hasn't worked with before the first thing I do to be sure that I'm comfortable on a project and 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 maintaining kind of the quality of work that I've been fortunate to be associated with is the script so if there's a bad script and I there's a couple bad scripts that I've you know one or two that I've agreed to step onto, but in those cases, I will actually have a clause in my contract where I can choose not to have my name attached to the project and I'll just help you okay. make the movie. But in this case, and in most cases, I, you know, I have to really resonate with the script and feel like this is a script that'd be proud to be a part of if it becomes a movie. Okay. So that's I, so I still make that determination. And then what you'd mentioned, hiring professional crew, I'll be very involved in that process as well. Are there because I know Ulrich already has some crew members that he wants to work with. Are all those people 100 percent going to be shooting this movie or is that all kind of up to negotiation later once the money has been raised? Like, how do yeah, you I work think, through that? Yeah, Ulrich, I'm not sure which ones are. <laughs> I don't know that we have any firm commitments. I think we have a lot of people that are like. Yeah, if I'm available and you raise the money, I'd like to do this and, you know, that type of conversation. But the fact that we haven't scheduled this yet, that we don't have the money, that we haven't even offered firm rates, 
I'm not sure who literally is attached to the movie to do this. You're the only official person attached to it with a, with a contract. Um, you and, and the investors who've already invested. Um, but everybody else, you know, who's associated with the project right now, it's all just kind of, um, you know, just a handshake deal or it's not even a deal. It's more just like, yeah, I, I want you to be the DP on this movie. Oh, I want, you know, want you to be the casting director on this movie or the sound designer or, or whatever, you know, the different roles that I've kind of have already lined up, you know, but, um, but yeah, depending on what happens, that could all go out the window. Um, you know, I know people probably aren't going to be excited about that if that happens, you know, cause, but you're good with that. I mean, well, I don't know. It's also a two-way street. You know, some of these guys, some of these guys who said I'm interested may not be available. You know, we, right, we, may not, we might be shooting this when they're on a honeymoon. Yeah. We might be shooting it when they got a real movie, you know, a big movie that they're doing or a gig. You know, so I found I have numerous crew positions, department heads that I work with, different people. And a lot of times my, my A-team is like, yeah, I'd love to do it, but I can't. You know, I know about the project, but I... I'm working on this other film, you know, or I can't, in this case, we're, we're kind of going, you know, lower budget than some of my other movies and the rates just may not be something they can work with because I doubt Ulrich has talked to him about specific rates, how long this is going to be, let alone, you know, our schedule because we don't know when we're going to shoot. Right. This. So, but is there a possibility that Ulrich could come to you with somebody on his creative team that you just weren't comfortable with? And you said, no, we're not using that person. We need to use this person. I haven't had that happen in the past. So, you know, I'm, I'm not super rigid in that respect. If Ulrich has someone and can really, pitch why he's the right person i'm open to listening to that okay just yeah. curious and then how much you said the script is important but how much of a director's past work is plays into you coming on board did you look at all rick short films for instance and were those part of the, the package for you i've looked at some of what all rick has done and and that is important but what is more important is the person's passion for the film the project that he will put this in front of anything else that he has on his plate. Because what happens gotcha. is this process, you know, it can take, you know, take out the fundraising part, but the actual filmmaking, say we have money in the bank, it's going to be a one-year process from yeah, the development know, right? to pre-production, the production to post. And I need to know that the person who's leading the creative side is going to be there from the first day to the last day. Cause I'm usually the first guy in and the last guy out. Cause I'm dealing with the investors. I'm dealing with final distribution. I'm dealing with collecting money from distributors. And I need to know that Ulrich's going to be there, you know, during the good times and bad times. And, and, and we may not be making a lot of money during the distribution period or during some phase of the movie that he's committed because it's his baby that he's going to be there until this thing sunsets. Yeah. How do you find right. out if somebody's committed like that? <laughs> I mean, I, you look at his podcast, he's been doing it for almost three years. So I'm sure that kind of helps, right? It does. And I can, I'm pretty good at judging character and I, I can just tell because I, I think Ulrich, we had a conversation about this anyways. Like, are you, you know, do you have the wherewithal to be there for, for a year and then also be there on the tail end as well? And I typically have those types of conversations and I get a pretty good sense, you know. Like, are you married, <laughs> right. one? 
<laughs> and if you aren't, how long have you been dating? And why, right. why haven't you right. pulled the trigger? Those are like some of the first questions I would ask. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, going into the meeting, Jeff, like I've already been working on the, the movie for like four years almost, um, from in, in the development and script writing phase. So I think, you know, already being four years in, like that's a pretty good sign that I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I had just, when I met Jeff, I had just got back from AFM, I think, um, when we had our, like, first in-person meeting. So, I and think... you guys got introduced via your lawyer? Is that how Yeah, it yeah, awesome. via George just, Rush. I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and my lawyer. Really great guy. <laughs> Super busy producer, though. I mean, man, he's got a lot on his plate, that guy. Never stops. It's awesome. Uh, Auric, I really like this question you have about like running out. Like, do you think running out and making your first feature for under $20,000 is a good idea for first time directors? And I'm curious, like, especially Jeff, from your perspective and like choosing which projects to get attached to, does it help that a director's already directed a feature before, even if it's just like a small $20,000 feature that nothing happened with it? it? It does. It absolutely does because it gives them the sense of, how to be resourceful in making a low budget movie, even if it's a feature, you know, if it's over 60 minutes, no matter what, if they only spent $20,000, it's not a lot different than spending four or $500,000 because uh, you're still going to shoot for at least two, possibly three weeks. You got to figure out how to feed people. And probably that person paid no one anything, but still had a crew, maybe a small crew. And also that person who directed that movie probably wore multiple hats, including editing the film, maybe scoring it, uh, maybe shooting it as well as directing it. And those are things that I like to see as well from a director, uh, that they can at least do more than just direct the film because you're kind of getting a twofer, you know, at least, especially someone who can edit because the editing process is one of the more, probably the, probably the most expensive line item on a shoot uh, oh, really? is the editor because he's there for three months. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you can get that for free, that's great. You know, and Ulrich, he, he's actually paying to edit. Do you recommend, though, that a director edits their own film? I actually do. I do on oh, these wow. types of budgeted movies because... The director will know intimately, first of all, he'll have his vision. Secondly, he'll know every piece of footage that was shot, which will take weeks for an editor just to get up to speed on. And uh, and then thirdly, we typically don't have the luxury, uh, you know, on these lower budget movies to pay someone three months to edit a film. Now, if if you can bring in an editor, the director or we can bring in an editor who's willing to do this, you know, on the come, that's great. Then I'm then I'm comfortable with that. But if you don't, uh, you know, it's a big savings in the budget. Yeah, get to work. And and if he's a good editor, right. I, yeah, you know. Oh man. Yeah, that was one of the first things Jeff asked um, oh, really? when he was like, "Can you edit?" You know, yeah, exactly. When he was deciding to come on, I was like, "Yeah, are you, what, can and you edit?" Like, Dude, gonna... I get paid to edit. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was also like at that time I was sort of thinking that I want, didn't want to edit my movie just because for various reasons and like work with a, a different editor, you know. But uh, I mean, hey man, whatever needs to happen to get the movie done <laughs> like I'm, i'll yeah. edit it if i have to that's yeah. no problem and if we have the luxury of being able to afford an editor that's great but right now the way we budgeted it's going to be pretty tight and i think a great time to bring in editing also is for a second look because a lot of times you get you know we we create this film 
And it's like, gosh, we need, you know, an unbiased thorough right. look at this. Fresh pair of eyes. And, and that's, exactly. And that's mm-hmm. a great time. I find it's really helpful to yeah. bring in an editor at that well, stage. Well, here, I have one more question. Just because you said, like, you know, making the low budget $20,000, you know, first feature is a good idea. I obviously haven't done that yet. Um, you know, just because, like... I don't know. Like I've always had this vision for this movie that I wanted to do it with a decent budget or, you know, and, and do it on kind of on the same scale that I made the short films, you know, like mm-hmm. kind of, but scaled up. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking like, yeah, I don't know. Should I have done that? <laughs> Would that have been a better route to go? Oh, well, and also like those movies, like they, they, they might make some money because it costs so little to make, you know, but, um, I don't know. There's, there's also the argument that that, you know, would set up the wrong expectation for that director to have like a really low budget movie. But then there's lots of famous people who've done that and no one cares. Yeah. You know, Ed, Ed so. Sanchez, you know, uh, he and I have been talking and we're trying to work on a movie together. He, he directed and wrote the Blair Witch Project. You know, they did that for under a hundred thousand, you know, 50 ish. Of course, that's, you know, that's lightning in a jar. So, right. Um, right. And anyone, if you do a low-budget movie as your first movie, I don't think anyone will really criticize you for your efforts. And and they'll take, I would glean all the positive things that came out of an ultra-low-budget movie than, like, saying, gosh, it sucked. Um, yeah, well, the problem is we're, we're coming from, like, the maybe more audience side, and audiences mm-hmm. definitely judge pretty mm-hmm. harshly. If, like, you were to show your film to just the average audience member and they'd be like, that movie right. sucks. Right. Why'd you waste right. your time with that? But I think, yeah, from, like, the business perspective and just showing that you do have the the perseverance to, like, get through a project of that size with the very little amount of money, I think, is very impressive. Yeah, and the $20,000 number, that might be kind of an arbitrary number. I would have to say, unless you actually owned all your equipment, and got everybody to work for you for free. You know, it's it's per, it would be hard to make a feature film for twenty thousand. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know why we said twenty thousand, but we've talked to filmmakers before that have done it for as little as like twenty five hundred dollars for a feature, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then maybe yeah, like average is between like twelve ten to twenty. I would say like we had a filmmaker on that did one for twelve. We had a woman on that did one for like twenty thousand. So we've talked to some very micro budget filmmakers and. I think we've always had that question in our head, like, all right, well, these $20,000 films, like, what's the worth of them? Because they're not getting seen by a lot of people. They're not getting major distribution. They're not winning a bunch of awards. So what's Mm -hmm. the point Mm -hmm. besides Mm -hmm. just practice, maybe? Right, right. Well, I guess it would be the same as doing people do shorts and spend upwards of that amount of money. I, oh, I actually, yeah. I spent 100000 on my short. Yeah. So I questioned. I would say, I would have said, because I did a movie with Daniel Baldwin that got distribution and actually did recouped its budget. And we did it for $75,000. Oh, wow. And it was a horror movie. Yeah. Um, we shot it in 12 days. And uh, one location, and it actually one you know it, it, it's pretty well acclaimed for a micro budget movie. So it is possible. It's hard for me to do that because I can't ask all my friends at this level to work for free <laughs> and to give me all their equipment for free and things like that because I had to pay Daniel Baldwin right. X dollars and the rest of the actors. We were union. We had to pay them. You know they they ate up. A third of the budget, at least, and uh, then we had to rent our equipment. Well, can we talk about the business 
distribution kind of side of the business like so you go out and you guys make this movie what happens next like where how do you get a film like the alternate soul right do you, do you have to enter festivals in order to get it seen in order to find a yes. distributor or do for, you go to for, afm for the most part you don't go to afm you never you know i go to afm to see my distributors and see how they're going <laughs> but when you're going there without actually a film in distribution uh you know you're lucky to get some meetings. So but you don't go to AFM to find distribution. You only you, go you if you don't. already have distribution. They, you don't. You know, some of these guys will give you their cards, but that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is for independent features is to go the festival route. Um, our distributors even want us to do that, even when we're already picked up by a distributor, for a number of reasons. Firstly, it 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 kind of validates a movie. If you get into one of the major festivals, one of the top four or five, Sundance, South by Southwest, Toronto, whatever, uh, Berlin, you're, you've got the seal of approval and you will get distribution and you'll probably get a decent amount of money. And so that in itself is a vetting process for distributors. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the deal that you would get from a distributor at one of those major festivals. Is it cash on the table or is it a percentage of the box office? What, what do they normally offer you? No, so a decent deal, realistic expectation from a distributor. Because again, remember, there's thousands of films uh, seen at these festivals. Uh, if you take them all combined, uh, you know, maybe uh, several hundred at least that have commercial viability. But then when you whittle it down, only a handful get theatrical. So box office typically expectations you don't necessarily expect that from an independent film but what you do expect is what's called a minimum guarantee it's an mg so what i like to see from my distributors is someone who's going to pick up worldwide rights so i don't have to bifurcate them and deal with a north american distributor and deal with deal with a foreign sales agent so someone who picks up worldwide rights although that doesn't always happen and then secondly and most importantly, is what dollar amount are they going to guarantee uh, to pay me upon delivery of the film, regardless of how well this thing does, internet, how well it does commercially. And then you get a piece of the commercial action. So it'll be hopefully a sizable guarantee up front that pays for a good part of your budget. And then the back end uh, is typically they'll take out a distribution fee of 20 to 30 percent. They will then get to recoup everything that they paid to you as an advance. They get to recoup their marketing expenses, and then you get the rest of the money. And oftentimes there isn't much left over after you know all of their recoupment and what they paid you. Yeah, on. that's a story that we've heard from people that have gone the traditional distribution route. Is that there's never enough money to get paid, but and but most of them are taking deals that don't have a minimum guarantee and so right. most filmmakers are just they're giving their film to the distributors and never seen a dime come back that's what i've heard i've been knocking what i've always seen money on my films not always that's enough great. to recoup budget but i've always been receiving i've received checks in all of my films and are there distributors that you know or just like you should stay away from and you kind of now that you've done it enough that you kind of know which distributors you can trust yes so and i wouldn't say who the ones that i <laughs> i wouldn't trust but <laughs> and right. some of them it's hearsay but i have a, a good handful of inside distributors and foreign sales agents and many of them i've done repeat business with and uh Either from prior experience, I know whether to continue to work with them or not, or from my friends in the business will tell me these are the guys to, you know, if you get an offer, you know, work with them. And if, and if you 
you know, stay away from these people. And that's particularly true, I think, on foreign sales. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of foreign sales agents out there. And the reporting, it's so hard to track. I think it's impossible for me to know exactly what deals are closing internationally. And they can tell you it's for this. And yeah, and right. so you need to trust. There's a lot of trust that happens between you and the distributor, right? You have to like assume that or guys trust that the paperwork they're showing you is accurate. Exactly. You, there's no way to follow up on it. Exactly. And then that the money that they receive, they're reporting all of it. And yeah, so right. That's on, on the foreign sales side, I, tr- you know, I, I, you have to be more reliant on the trusting that person because they can more easily deceive you than on the domestic side. The domestic side, they can run up expenses, but that's where you negotiate caps on expenses. So even though I don't know that you really spent all that money, I know I'm going to assume you're going to hit your cap. Yeah. And then on the revenue side, you know, they do supply underlying um, reports from their sub distributors. So presuming that, that they're not uh, whiting it out and marking those up, you know, the, the domestic numbers, I think, are easier to track than on the foreign. And so would you ever take a deal that didn't have a minimum guarantee on it? Yes, yeah, sometimes. Uh, and I have taken deals without minimum guarantees. And sometimes that's the only offer you have. Right. You know, multiple offers without minimum guarantees, and you got to decide which one is most you're most likely to see money from. Is the optimum minimal guarantee one that covers the budget of the film? Yes, but that doesn't happen too often. That, <laughs> yes. <laughs> sure. yes. You know, I know that filmmakers always tend to keep the budget of their film secret to try to get the most amount of money, I'm guessing, from the minimum guarantee especially. Right. So as a producer, when you're trying to get the money back, um, what are you trying to negotiate? Are you trying to negotiate like a quarter of the film's budget, half of it, 75%, all of it? So the, the negotiation, the first offer typically does not come from the filmmaker. So, and we don't, and you're right, we don't discuss our budget. We keep that, you know, our hands, uh, we don't show our hands. Uh, but nowadays, buyers, distributors, are pretty savvy and they have a pretty good sense of what the film was made for. Yeah, so they can, they have their own <laughs> Right, I'm assuming, yeah, they can look at it and say, they that's can. probably a $500,000 film or a Exactly. Film. Yeah. And they know, they have a pretty good sense of what movies are made for. I think, in my case, because we, on my projects, we I do a good job of bringing costs down, both on the production side, but also negotiating with talent. I feel like they assume my movie's are probably 25% higher than what we've actually right. spent. That's but the goal, that's, right? Is to make your money look like it, co- or make your movie look like it costs a lot more to make. Exactly. And I get people on my crew that, you know, that will work with me, DPs that, you know, are working for less than their normal rate on comparable size budget movies because, you know, we have history together. But so, the, you know, they'll have their assumption of what the movie's made for, and they're the first ones to make an offer. So, I can't, you know, I would love to see X percent of my budget on an MG, but I can't really control what their first dollar, what their first offer is. And all I can control is based on that offer. And if I have competing offers, I have more leverage and I can then get a higher, you know, MG out of these guys. And if I don't, and these guys talk amongst themselves. They kind of know what's going on. Okay. Uh, they do. So, so when an offer comes to you, it's not 
automatically assume that you're going to come back with a counter offer. It's almost kind of like, this is what I'm offering, take it or leave it. No, I would say I always counter and there's always negotiation room, but your counter may have, you may have less leverage in your counter. If you only have one offer, you will have less leverage. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and, they'll, and they'll always know if you have multiple offers on your know. project. <laughs> wow. Know. Okay. They know. That's funny. <laughs> they know. Like I had a deal out of Sundance where we had multiple offers and it kind of got whittled down to two or three offers. And one of my friends that I knew at a distributor, which was who was a major player, I mean, they're like a top tier B distributor. They have money, they make offers, they make MGs, they do bigger films. And he called me, he goes, you know, we have an offer. And I go, I know, I saw your, or I saw that you were circling. They hadn't actually made the offer. And I said, yeah, put your offer in. We'd love to, to do a deal with you. And he, uh, they ultimately didn't. But when we closed our deal, he already knew the terms of what we took. So he, oh, funny. He was, he was talking with the other people. And during the negotiation process, when he was contemplating putting an offer in, he knew uh, was really close on the numbers that were being offered. And he said, yeah, we, we're just not going to be in that range. You know, I'm going to let those guys fight it out because we're not going to come in at that number. <laughs> wow. so, yeah, you know, that's funny. Yeah, they talk. And speaking of film festivals, um, how important are film festivals on all this distribution? Do, do they play a big role, small role? They play a big, big role. Like I mentioned earlier, if you get into one of the majors – uh, like my foreign sales agent on one of the films he picked up before we went into the festival, before we had it completed, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do your distribution. He didn't provide any MG, but I was happy to that he'd just pick it up on the foreign sales side. He gave me three different quotes on estimates. He said, okay, here's the quote. Here's what we would expect to receive if you get into Sundance. Here's what we'd expect to see if you get into South by Southwest, and here's what we'd expect to see if we don't get into either. And even though this film did really well festival-wise, we didn't get into any of the top three or four majors, but we got into all the top genre festivals. His numbers are pretty on the nose about this is what you got, this is what you'd receive if you don't get into Sundance or South wow. by Southwest. Interesting. And then I had a movie Crazy. that got into South by Southwest, and I and my expectations for it were or less, but because we got into South by Southwest, we got a solid MG that we otherwise would not have received. And is that because they can put the name of the film festival on like the poster poster image? Mostly, I think mostly because of that. Yeah, you know, my my foreign guys. Or word of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth. Um, whenever my movies get into South by or Sundance, there's just. So many more people are interested in seeing it from a distributor uh, side, from a viewer side. Gotcha. We're getting so much more buzz. Because I was wondering, like, why not just, if, if you already know the distributors, why not just go directly to them with the film? Well, yeah, because they're all kind of waiting. They're, 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 especially with a script, or if you do have the film, they're still typically like, let's see how well you do with the festival circuit because they're not so festivals are almost like a publicity a, a more of a PR it's free thing. Buzz. it is free marketing as well it is free marketing so whether you get into a top festival or a mid-tier festival uh the distributors are still happy that you're doing that because you're you know when you go to cinequest or to or to um you know uh 
I just came back from Palm Springs. We got mm-hmm. so much press on yeah. for our our uh, documentary, and it just you know we're getting articles written us about us, and it helps. It just helps in the marketing process. So okay, so so it's marketing, press, like free buzz, word of mouth. People want to see it, mm-hmm. but then it's also just distributors need that stamp of approval for somebody to say this movie is good. This movie's worth it. it. It helps them. It helps them get them over get them over the hump. <laughs> and and they have so many films to look at. You know, I think they're like, boy, let's just instead of looking at five thousand films, let's look at the top films from the top festivals. Right. You know, that makes their job a lot easier. And they actually go to those festivals. Right. They go to Sundance. They go to South by. They don't go to the other festivals. And just submitting a film. And if you don't get into one of the majors, even though they know me, the nice thing is that they'll take my call and they'll look at my film. But they still have to make a decision based on the film. And if they feel like, well, gosh, just didn't get into any major festivals. And, you know, after they look at the film because it's a favor to me, the rest has to stand on its own. So if you don't make it into a major festival, does that mean that your chances of distribution dwindle down to almost zero? No, actually means the price point of your distribution will drop dramatically uh you'll still you know not all my films get into sundance or south by southwest but they all get distribution so you'll find some sort of you have a good chance of finding distribution i I don't know about other people but i feel confident on my films i will get distribution with or without sundance it's just my price point drops dramatically right and Based so, on the festivals, if you don't make it into a major festival, because I'm and I'm going to talk about that a little bit, because I think most of the people listening to this podcast and me included is not going to make it into a major festival. So, what are my hopes, and what festivals should I be focusing on? Are there lists of festivals where distributors would go um, outside of kind of like the top tier festivals that I could still find them at? Like there Cin- are. you mentioned, Cinequest is that is Cinequest considered kind of like mid-tier or that's a, it's a mid-tier but the 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 good festivals to go to if you're looking for distribution are the ones near los angeles because the distributors okay. they're like okay i'm gonna drive up to um, santa barbara <laughs> right. get away for the weekend and watch films so uh things santa barbara is actually a good festival los angeles which is also mm-hmm. pretty hard to get into but anything near los angeles Palm springs uh, Palm Springs, we went to, I went to Palm Springs Amdocs, which is for the, the documentary I had. And I think that was good. But I, I can't speak to the bigger Palm Springs International Film Festival. I don't, okay. I don't know on that What one. about like Telluride or Tribeca or, you know, Toronto? Well, Tribeca and Toronto are actually one of the, Toronto is one of the bit majors. Actually, okay. it could be the most important of the majors because oh, wow. all the buyers go there. There's a film market uh, yeah, there. Yeah, it's a film market. It's it's where commercial stuff gets sold. So I, I would, of all festivals to get into, Toronto is one. You know, number one. Santa Bar, uh, then uh, Sundance might be two, uh, and then Tribeca has moved up. You know, is probably comparable to South by Southwest. So I I consider that as one of the majors. Okay. Um, what about Telluride and Slamdance? Are those lower? Those yeah, two? they're lower. So Telluride, I think, is a high-quality festival. And if you have a, a, a good film that fits that category, that is that is a great laurel to have. So that is a seal of approval. Definitely worthwhile getting into it. Slamdance, I don't know as much about anymore. It used to be, I feel like, historically, 
that had a really good reputation as the alternative to Sundance and the program against Sundance. But now um, I just don't hear a lot about it. And I think they are focusing mainly on first-time directors. Um, but I haven't heard a lot about projects coming out of Sundance and, and getting sold. But, you know, I, I would... I mean, that's better than a lot of other smaller festivals that you've never, ever heard of. So. Oh, the last one I'm curious about, just because I've tried to get into them for millions of years. Well, all, since all my, my short films, basically, and I never got in, uh, the Austin Film Festival. What about those guys? I think I um, met with the programming director when I was just at South by Southwest. I've never applied to Austin. So I, you know, I, and I, so I don't know enough about it. I think they tend to do... Uh, less genre stuff. So if you're, you know, if your film fits that, uh, you know, what they're looking for, I think it has still has a very solid reputation. Yeah, they they do a big like writing component, like a writing writing conferences and like you know screenwriting events and panels, and you know they have a screenplay writing competition that that's big. So I think like. I don't know. I've been hearing a lot about it through those kinds of podcasts and avenues. Right. You know. Um, right. That's what so. I've heard as well. And I met one of the, like the programming director there, and he kind of told me about it. And again, it's a lot of my projects wouldn't have fit in that. So that's probably why it's never been on my radar. So the, the million dollar question then is how the heck do you get into a good festival? Is it just <laughs> luck or is it like all about the connections? Like, do we need to, is this why like big cast is important because the bigger the actor, the more likely they're going to take your movie at a festival. Like, yes. Recognizable talent as much as everyone from distributors to festivals say, Oh, it's all about the script and, and how the movie was shot. The first question I always get asked is, who's in your movie? I mean, it's always the first question they ask. So I think talent, recognizable talent is a major plus. Um, uh, and then the movie itself. But the other thing that helps you, the intangible that helps you get into festivals is knowing people that know people. So I have you know some contacts at some of these festivals and that'll help make a difference. What it'll do is it'll help us bypass the first level of interns that screen out, I don't know what percent, you know, 50, 60% of the movies. We'll get past that if you know someone, and it'll get flagged as at least must-watch by the second round of screeners. And well, that's uh, good. <laughs> yeah, so you can bypass, you know, right. the the rest of the crowd and at least get to the next level. And then, the, then after that, I think the film has to stand on its own. If they hear good things about it, which is hard because typically festivals, you know, there's no buzz about a film until it's actually going to festivals. But once you are accepted to a festival, what I find is on my projects, once we've been accepted to a decent festival, a recognizable festival, we get, we get invited to tons of festivals after that. And then you don't have to worry about submitting. Right. Oh, that's nice. So if getting into one of the big festivals like Sundance is the goal, then are you guys trying to get your film done in time for Sundance is the first of the season, right? So you have right. to submit by like September or October. Right, right. So um, is your timeline for most yes. films kind of based on finishing around that? No, for us, uh, for me, it's typically when is the money there so we can start the movie. And I have chased the Sundance uh, deadline on a number of projects. And what I've found, uh, one of our movies, we were lucky to get in when it wasn't even complete. We submitted a, 
half the film, uh, rough, rough cut. And then we, that's all we had done. And then we submitted a montage for the rest of the film and we actually got in. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. It was pretty amazing. It was that's because amazing. our directors were well liked and uh, Trevor Groth knew us. And that made a big difference. And we did ultimately get a sale out of Sundance. We got a decent sale. It was a genre movie. It was one of the midnight screenings. But that was a situation where I probably wouldn't do that again because I don't think it would ever get us in. And I've submitted. Yeah, seems risky. Yes, I submitted projects that we had like our rough cut, but we weren't really comfortable with it. And and I think it really hurt us. So I, I'm like. Only submit it when you feel comfortable, and if you miss the deadline, so be it. Because even if you have your best foot forward, your chances are still pretty low relative to the 10,000 films they receive, and yeah. except, you know, X percent. So just, you know, submit it when it's ready. Well, let me give you a hypothetical. So you make your movie, your feature films in the can, then you edit, and you hit some delays. You were trying for Sundance, but you missed it, and now your film is done and like, January or February, do you start submitting to festivals or do you sit on it and wait for the next? I would I would say in most cases you just start submitting to festivals. You still have oh, to- really? you still have Toronto, you know, coming up, you know, in September. So which is a huge festival. You have Tribeca, which is I don't know, is that March or April? That's March. March. So you probably miss Tribeca, you miss South by Southwest. Yeah. But you're probably okay for the fall ones right right you know and also if your film you feel it's that strong you know like i said on my sundance movie we submitted that uh it might have been like after thanksgiving so you know they always keep a couple slots open till you know the last say four weeks before or three weeks before and uh, if you feel it's that strong, you just got to figure out a way to get them to take a look at it. So, like, if you finish your movie in January or February and then, like, Tribeca and some of the other big spring festivals are coming up in March or April, you would still just send it to them and just yes. try to get it to them and just I be would, like, hey, look, this is done. Take right, a look. Right. Yeah, okay. Like, with uh, South By, we've also done that in the past because we've, we've had, I've had several films of South By and so my, the people I've been connected with on those projects, they've looked at our films, and and uh, so we've submitted late at South by as well. I forget is that March uh, South by, so you can have till February. Yeah, I think so. If you push your luck, you know it's not ideal, and and your chances diminish greatly for those last few slots. I mean, it's it's your chances are less than if you submit early. So gotcha. it's not a great way to be submitting, but if you feel that strongly about your film. Yeah. But submitting early is always the best if you yes. can. Yes. Okay. Because cool. as you get past the deadlines and I've submitted a lot of my films past deadlines and they've accepted them. Some haven't been accepted. Uh, what happens is they're making commitments to films and there's fewer and fewer slots left. And they're like, Oh, is this, is this worthy of getting that last, you know, three or four slots we have? And so the the standard by which you have to meet is higher if you're submitting late. Right. So you want to be, you know, hit meet the submission deadline. Even the the late deadline is fine because I don't, you know, they they haven't made any decisions by then. So. And how important is the whole premiere thing? Like, is that like a big deal? Like, are we trying to premiere at the biggest festival that you can, or 
does it does it really matter? It does. It does. Well, some of them are premier only. You know, some of those big festivals are premier only. So if you've already had a North American premiere, you can't circle back, you know, in the later part of the year and try to get back into one of those major festivals. They'll hold that against you. Some of them have specific limitations. You can't do a premiere. If you've already premiered in certain territories, you're not eligible. So you hold off basically till you hear back from the biggest ones before you accept a premiere? Yes. Yes. And so if I've submitted, you know, in time where I can get into Sundance and all these other festivals and you haven't heard back, you do wait. And, and the festivals understand that. Like, uh, you know, we got into, for example, we were trying to play on one of my movies at San Francisco. We had already had our world premiere, but they required Bay Area premiere. And then we got into Sonoma. And I told Sonoma, I'd rather, you know, I prefer to be at San Francisco because I'm more of a, you know, it's closer to my Bay Area roots than Sonoma is. So we can't accept yet. And then at the same time, I reached out to San Francisco as we're getting closer to deadlines that uh, I let them know. I said, I need to know or, you know, because of a commitment I'm going to make to someone else. And so they they told us they tipped their hand. They didn't actually tell us where we were, but they tipped their hand and said, well, here's, you know, what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) Outside of festivals, is there any other way to get distribution? And maybe I'm asking the wrong person because it sounds like you've had a lot of success with this technique, but what other ways could you recommend to somebody to find distribution? So outside of that, and I've had a couple of projects where I've actually approached distributors before the festival run or for whatever reason on some of my earlier films, we didn't do the festival run or didn't have very success, good success on our initial submissions. And then it's, then it's reaching out to distributors directly. And, uh, you know, that's what a, you know, that's actually what a producer's rep does anyways. They take, it's not rocket science. They take, you know, you can easily determine who are the North American distributors and you create a list you find out who the contact person is and you submit. Now, how receptive they are to people that are first-time filmmakers, I don't know. I can reach out to them and not necessarily, they may not have done business with me in the past, but just because of my track record, they'll accept the submission um, directly from me right. and not necessarily through producer's rep or even a distributor. You know, Some of these distributors these days aren't all they are is kind of middlemen. You know, now the buyers are Netflix and Shutter and and you know linear broadcast companies and these distributors that some are recognizable names still have to pitch Netflix. You know, they don't. It's not right. like they have an output deal and can just put it on Netflix. And so they're acting as brokers. But again, if you go directly to a distributor, the the minimum guarantee you could potentially get is going to be much smaller than if it played at any festival. Probably so. Uh, yes, I would say so. Especially if you don't get into a top tier festival, uh, your 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 price point is going to be lower. Yeah. Um, and then I have one more question about distribution. Um, have, do you have any experience with self distribution? I mean, we've been hearing a lot about this lately as like a new avenue for filmmakers to go after just to do it yourself. Um, do you recommend that, or do you? I wouldn't recommend that. Um, I've kind of done a little bit of research on self-distribution and and the people you know it's not like you're actually pressing the dvds or uploading it to netflix or to or to or to vod um, which would be the better example you're still going through an aggregator and 
it's there's costs involved. There's no one, there, you know, there's no free lunch. So self-distribution, you still have to get online with an aggregator and there are costs to doing that. There's encoding costs or setup fees. Uh, Digital Premier, I think, is one of the players. I don't even know if they work directly with people now, but whoever you're working with to do self-distribution is still working with somebody else. And if you don't, if you don't have any marketing dollars at all or any buzz, it's you know you're going to spend a lot of work and effort and probably some money trying to get self trying to do self distribution. And I would just recommend you know having someone else who's in that business doing it for you. Right. I, I assume the only way self distribution can work is if you have a marketing budget. And you hire somebody to help get the word out because otherwise there's no hope that anyone's going to ever find your movie. There's just too many movies out there. Right, right. And if you're going to do that, I mean, I so I know people on, you know, I can reference, I probably should because it's inside information on the budget, but it's a pretty well-known movie. Uh, came out, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Big actors, they did it for $10 million and they didn't get the right distribution offer. And so, obviously, they had a lot of money into it. I, I think they had maybe $7 million into it. And, you know, they had offers, but the MGs are probably bad. And I never saw what the offers were. But they decided to do self-distribution in the way you're talking about, where they actually put together a P&A budget, took it out to theaters, created a buzz, and then, and then got the ancillary uh, platforms picked up. But they were only able to, I think they put up a, a seven-figure P&A budget, million, million and a half. Wow. The, <laughs> all the revenue they got from theatrical, of course, they didn't, you know, they lost money on the theatrical, everyone typically does. But all the money they got back from all the platforms was only enough to cover their P&A spend. So they would have been better off taking whatever they offer they had. Wow, that's and, crazy. And you know, Jeez. receive whatever they would have because it was a it was critically acclaimed movie. It did it did well, you know, but they only received enough to to barely cover their P and A spend. Wow, and so they're basically back where they started yeah. um, before they did the self distribution. Yeah. So they lost their entire budget. Wow, whatever their M- MG would have been would have been at least p- covered part of the production. Exactly, and and that's a movie. Wow. You know, I think they would have actually seen some back end. I mean, it had some decent names and. They would have seen some back end beyond the MG. And you can't say what the movie is then, huh? It's it's a uh, no because there are some. Sure, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> it was a, it was a movie about uh, the wine business. And oh, you okay, guys might be sure, able to sure, that sure. <laughs> All right, I think I know which one it is. Yeah, I, I have one last question before we okay. get to final five, which is what your role as a producer like. You're in now before the money has been raised. And then how long do you stay on the film after it's finished? Do you stay all the way through the festival run? Do you help distribute funds to investors? Yes, I'm I'm the last guy standing. I'm typically (laughs) stuck handling, even with dealing with the investors, even if I wasn't brought on to that part of the deal because I speak investor language. Um, I run most of the LLCs, so you got to file tax returns, you got to pay LLC fees, you got to do all that stuff. 
Um, so as long as the movie's guy. still alive and out there, you're still on it. I am. And I'm yeah. usually the guy shutting down the LLC. Sadly. <laughs> and then, I'm, um, I'm going to have all, I'm passing the torch to Ulrich on his movie. So you get compensation right. <laughs> wise, you get paid as a producer for the shoot. And then also do you get like back end points? Yeah. I, I get paid during the shoot and back end points. Yes. Gotcha. If, if there are any. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which yeah. on our movie, of course there will be. So, yeah, of, you course. Know. of course. Yeah. We're going to retire positive. after our movie. <laughs> yeah, <be> exactly. <laughs> or you can just take on more risky projects that's, after this one. That's right. So <laughs> I, I had one final question and, you know, I just know there's a lot of young filmmakers out there who, you know, are, are excited to make their first movie. Maybe have already made their $20,000 uh, first feature. I know there's a lot of, a lot of our listeners have already done that. Um, but like, what advice do you have for film? Makers out there who are trying to to you know get into the business, make more movies, get started. Like, what should they be doing? I'd say a couple of things. Uh, all depends on where they are in the filmmaking process. But when they're looking at projects, don't go. I still get some young filmmakers submitting projects to me that are like, "That's going to be ten million dollars to make." You know, it's a period piece with wars and car chases. So keep keep your projects you know reasonable. Look at try to. Do it for as little as you can. Doesn't not for twenty thousand, but not for many millions. You know, keep it within an amount that is feasible for you to raise. So five hundred thousand dollars, eight hundred thousand, four hundred thousand. Keep the projects relatively contained, and uh, and and don't give up. And then wherever possible, when you're getting to the point of making the film. Uh, you know, try to bring on recognizable talent attachments. That's great. Timothy, you have an, I have one more question, unless you have another question. Yeah, I have a kind of a follow-up to that, which is our dream and, and the dreams of most filmmakers is just to find a way to be able to keep making our movies to make this a sustainable thing. Mm-hmm. How does that work on an indie level? Like, let's say that I wanted to make a movie every year. Mm-hmm. How could I set myself up for that kind of success? Or does that just not exist unless you're like a Woody Allen or you're inside the studio system? No, it does. Because I'm averaging, like I have three movies that are coming out this year. I'm doing almost one to two a year. It It is possible. It's I guess it's having a broad network. Um, and it depends on what part of the you know business you're in. If you're want to only write and direct your own movie you're limiting yourself because then how how much can you write and direct you know create each year right you know so you're but saying if you're a writer director like Alric, you should also maybe produce other people's movies like that maybe Alric should jump on and produce my movie that or be opening <laughs> be open to directing other people's work uh, okay yeah yeah, don't. It doesn't have to be my script because maybe I was trying to get you to tell Ulrich to produce my movie. It didn't work. That <laughs> producing right. does give you more opportunities, actually. I think than interesting uh, to find work because you can produce multiple projects. You can have multiple directors. You can have right. multiple writers. You can do different types of genres. So that's why I'm. Or if you're a DP, you could also jump around from project to project. Yeah. When you're crew, that's when you have most of your opportunities because you're you're for hire. You know, it's like, right. I'll, I'll do your movie. I'll do, you know, I'll do whatever. So, um, the crew. So as part of your success, just having a bunch of things kind of always in the work. So let's say you choose a script a month and you get 12 projects kind of like that you're attached to a year and then maybe like two of them go. Absolutely. And you know, that's, it's a, a numbers game, right? That is, it is. So I, I say I typically have a dozen projects in the works. And if you do, you know, two of them, 
my hit ratio is a little bit higher, but uh, you should have like a dozen in the works. And if you get one done, you know, there, you can get one a year, you know, but have multiple projects going on at the same time. Yeah. Last year, I decided to stop producing things for other people because I had been doing that. Like I produced like two or three short films, you know, a bunch of other things and just like helping on other projects. I almost produced a feature for somebody a couple years ago. And I have another friend who wants me to produce his feature who listens to this podcast. Hi, Bailey. Um, and so... I don't know. I just kind of decided that like, if I want to be a director and I want to make like direct my own movie, like I have to dedicate myself to that because if I keep on taking other people's projects, I'm just going to keep on pushing my project back. Yeah. You know, that makes um, sense. at least for the first one. And then like, once I get, you know, the alternate made, maybe I can, you know, step on and produce somebody else's movie for them or whatever. Right. Then you can leverage from the, right. From, what would you say? Like from the writer, director, the alternate, it's something that you produce, I guess. Right. I don't know. Or for the people that brought you the alternate. Yeah, something like that. I mean, you see famous filmmakers doing that all the time. Like, you know, Brian Singer's putting his name as a producer on Project, you know. Oh, or, yeah. Yeah, all kinds of Duplass directors Brothers doing that. Duplass Brothers are all over everything. The writing, yeah. producing, mm-hmm. acting, directing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's definitely something I, I want to do in the future. But, yeah, I just feel like... For now, it's like I got to be serious as a director if I'm going to direct. And I'm in, and just for the record, I am more than happy to direct other scripts. Like, right. no problem with that. If you got a script, I'm, I'm down. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Where are these people with scripts that need directors? Yeah, I know. There's- I keep on hearing about these things and then I never, they never come my way. So, um, my, my last question before we get into our final five is, um, does it ever get any easier for, uh, you know, filmmakers to raise money for their movies? Cause like I'm, I'm right now, we're in the trenches trying to get the money for the alternate, but like, you know, on, on film five, is, will it be an easier process or is it always difficult? I think it's always difficult. I hate to, you know, be the Debbie Downer, but it's uh, <laughs> every project is a challenge and rarely, again, it's mostly about the capital. You know, if the capital is there, if the money's there, you know, you can make the movie. It's it's doable if you've got if you know what you're doing. But, uh, you know, it's 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 finding that money. And uh, after we make one movie, you know, there's always someone else is always looking for another project or looking to raise money on another movie. And it's rarely i've had a couple projects come to me fully financed and that's great but it's few and far between and if the money's not there then you got to work do you think it's easier to raise money in the bay area over la just because there's so much tech here you know um again most of so my projects a lot of times have come to me with a single investor who said oh i want to do this movie and I have someone who's, you know, he's my son or something. He's going to direct it or whatever, or we have someone attached. And it's been, uh, most of it has not come from Los Angeles or from San Francisco. Most of the money has not come from San Francisco and not much, none of the money's come from Los Angeles. It's been (laughs) from other states. Huh. Uh, wealthy, indivi- wealthy individuals from other states. Huh. Wow. I wonder why that is. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all you filmmakers out there in other states, <laughs> you, know, you have an opportunity. That's right. But then, but then they'll be finding their financiers from other states than the state they're in, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, yeah, I think it's all about who you know and who you're connected it, to. It is. It's just, it's just the people have, you know, brought me into the movies. They just happen to know people in different places that had a lot of money that yeah wish i knew more people like that (laughs) unfortunately um all right timothy unless you have any final questions let's you want to do the final five yes let's do it 
All right, cool. So, Jeff, this is like rapid fire round, a series of questions that we ask every guest. Okay. And the the goal is to ask it, answer pretty quickly and not like give long answers to everything. Gotcha. So, I'm going to start. So, question number one, David Fincher says you're doing pretty good if you can get 70% of what you want on a film set. As a producer, do you agree with that? If so, what percentage are you getting from uh, your films right now? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh our scripts, you know, what we end up shooting compared to the original script is so often different that uh, if you captured 70% of what you originally had envisioned, I think that's that's pretty good. What's the thing you struggle with the most as a producer? Well, I think we talked about it, uh, raising money. Uh, that is the hardest part. <laughs> but after that... Yeah, funny enough, that's the, the struggle for most people in this business. Y- yes, that is the hardest part. The second hardest part is is getting decent distribution where you have a good chance of recouping uh, your budget. Uh, distribution now is, is more difficult. It's really compressed. Less money in distribution, less money coming to filmmakers. If you could travel back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, not get into filmmaking? No. I meant that from, you know, make it, it's, it's so difficult to actually make a living producing films. And so if I had to solely live on this, uh, I would probably say that I would learn other areas of crewing within the filmmaking business if I had to rely on this income. I made money from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so that set me off and that, that set me fine. But if I were new getting into this business and I were like a director, I would at least know how to edit so you can you know, get paid to edit other people's films or learn mm-hmm. how to shoot. Like supplement, supplementary income in addition to the filmmaking stuff. That's right. Gotcha. Nice. Um, do you have a goal as a producer? To continue to do projects that I'm proud of uh, that get wider distribution release, but things that I'm proud of. I recently did a documentary, and it's just a different feeling when you get awards and compliments for doing something that's really feels good and makes people think about you know how grateful they are to be what they're doing in the case of my documentary you know having the ability just to walk and do basic things that we get to do um compared to some of my other projects that are purely genre uh driven which i still enjoy the accolades from that but uh, going outside of the box and not doing all the genre stuff that I've been doing recently. Nice. And the final question, is making movies hard? And if so, why do you do it anyways? <laughs> uh, making movies is very hard. Uh, again, not the actual movie-making process of it, but the monetization process of it, because you got to return money to your investors to have them continue to fund you. Um, and... So that, yeah, it is hard. Ulrich, you can attest to that. And what was the follow-up question to that? <laughs> then why, why do you why do, do, you do it? it? Oh, why do I do it? Uh, I, I love the process. I love the process. I love the people that I work with. And uh, crap, who wouldn't want to make a movie? I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, What's your like favorite it? part of the process? <laughs> the the fav- My favorite part is the yeah. physical production, actually being on set, okay, being there with awesome. the cast and crew. I, I love that part. It's 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 like twenty hour days for the producer but, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the director Ulrich, but it's uh, I love doing that. And then the gratification of seeing it distributed 
once you finally get it out there, that that's a really good feeling. As well. Oh, I have one last question. Um, oh. What is the average number of shoot days directors that you're working with are getting from their films? Three weeks. Uh, 15? So between 15 to 18 days. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Timothy wants 30 for his first movie. <laughs> I want 30 for mine. I'm telling him that he's got to keep dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make it happen. Unless he can get in like a, a million dollars for his, you know, low budget movie. No, four million. It's going to be four, four million. million. Yeah. Four million. Dear Lord. The one thing I wanted to say was I just watched one of Jeff's movies recently, The Night Watchman, and that must have been a hell of a lot of fun to make. I mean, you know, just from watching it and all the blood and like just the silliness and the goofiness, it just must have been a blast. It, it was. There's a uh, next time we talk, I can give you some backstory on that. There was a lot of hardship in making of that too. Uh, just dealing with blood all the time and having your actors in blood is really annoying to them. It gets all sticky right. and <laughs> right. they complain and they cry and all this and that. Oh no, but, but it was uh, so cool. I mean, you should see this movie, Timothy. It's got some of the best blood explosions um, you know, I've seen in any like kind of recent day, you know, uh, horror, indie horror comedy type movie. So Ooh, horror well, comedy. You. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yes. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. Where can people find you if they want to reach out or are you incognito? Uh, they can reach out. Uh, if you go to IMDB, I think some of my contact information is there. You can look me up on Facebook and friend me. I'd be happy to friend you. And I am new to Instagram and you can Instagram me as well. Oh, cool. What's your uh, handle on Instagram? Do you remember? I, I don't. Just, just, I do think. Do you mind if we track it down and we put a link in the show notes? Put a link, please do. Okay. So everyone, know, if you just type in my name, I think it'll show up. Okay. Yes. Cool. So please everyone do. go to makingmoviesishard.com. There will be links to how to get in touch with Jeff on there. Um, there will also be links to the movies that he's produced. There'll be probably a poster image to Auric's film, the alternate. Um, that says from the yeah. executive producer of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of it course. Sh- sure of does. course it does. It of sure course does. it does. Um, yeah. you should also Ulrich put links to your screenplay and to your lookbook and all that sure. stuff since, you know, every time we talk about it, you might as well just put some links out there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Anyone wants to get involved, you know, reach out to us. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're looking for additional team members to be part of, uh, the alternate. So definitely reach out to us if you guys and are interested. And money. They need That's money, right. guys. Right. If you got money and you want to spend <laughs> exactly. it on a film, contact them. And, you know, and I think one of the things that we've been saying, too, is like it's a really good opportunity to get into the business if you have the means. Right. You know, because, you know, you can come to set. You can be a part of the process. Like, you know, it can be a big learning experience. Absolutely. That's what know? we that's part of the return on investment is is being involved in the process. So we 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 bring in our investors to the extent they want to. So. Please. Wow. I can't believe we just had a commercial for the ultimate <laughs> alternate at the end of our I podcast. Know. We had to. <laughs> like, bye now. Bye now. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, everyone, if you want to get in contact with Ulrich and I, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at MMIH Podcast. And please, if you like the show, Leave us a review. We have not gotten a new review in probably like three months, and it's driving me crazy because I'm thinking no one likes us. Everyone hates us. <laughs> the podcast is dying. We're, right. we're shriveling up and going away. <laughs> Speaking of just rankings and iTunes for a second, for some okay. reason, Indie Film Hustle changed his name, and oh, he's really? dropped out of the filmmaking search altogether. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Weird. He's like not even, he used to always be like ahead of us, like number two, because there's like some like hunting podcast huh. that for some reasons is in the filmmaking category. So we're uh, like the number one filmmaking podcast when you search hi, filmmaking. That's amazing. Congratulations. Which is awesome. And Just Shoot It is right there like in number four, fourth or fifth place. So they've like, they've been able to get up the rankings. But it just goes to show that so much of this has to do with just working the system and making you making sure you have all those keywords in it because the indie film hustle he changed some of the the ways that huh. it's the that That's itunes finds him and so now he's not even ranked in the like top 10 of well, filmmaking podcasts that's interesting well, we are probably gonna have him on the show hopefully well, maybe I mean, I don't know. I, I think the so. Enemy. Um, yeah, I don't think he's an enemy. I think he's a, f- a friend we haven't met yet. Um, but, uh, Competition. But yeah. Right. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Anyways. Well, that's it. That's it. That's that's our final rant. Thanks, everyone, <laughs> okay. for listening. It's been super yeah. fun. Thanks, Jeff. All right, guys. Thanks, yeah, thanks a lot. Jeff. Right, right. Everyone right. have a good right. week. Bye-bye. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Okay, Eric. I don't know how familiar with Jeff you are. Maybe a little bit just because he was my producer on the alternate. But if he was on the show today... What is the one question you'd ask him? I would want to ask him just how he got to be so prolific when it comes to producing all of these films. I mean, just the the breadth of which this guy has made is so impressive. It's really, really staggering. It's the sort of thing I do wonder to myself, like, gosh, I'm just listening to this. I'm like, am I just lazy? Is that what it is? <laughs> it's just, has this guy just figured out some sort of schedule in his life in order to, to make this possible? I don't know, but I was really, really impressed just by the sheer volume of work that that this man has done so what about you if if, if you had him back on today or you you probably you're still in contact with him so i work with him now even i do some assistant editing stuff and some online editing stuff for him but yeah i mean what would i ask jeff if i was like have a chance to just ask him whatever i'd probably ask him like what he thought uh directors given this the current landscape of filmmaking like what they should do you know and i think i know his answer but i would still like to hear him say it <laughs> which i think mm. he would say just make movies however you can <laughs> build, build up a portfolio you know because yeah i think it's hard even now like to have be a feature filmmaker with one feature under your belt like you're not really that attractive to investors or producers really like you know you have to have like four or five <laughs> six mm-hmm. If you've directed six feature, oh yeah, now you're safe. You've done it so many times. We know that we can trust you. Two yeah. movies, I don't know. One movie, definitely not. Three movies, maybe you're getting close. But you know, I feel like because Liz has talked about that being a thing for her too, which is crazy. So yeah, that's why I would ask him. Okay. Well, we have a new segment. Not a new segment. It's a segment we've been doing for a while called "You're the Expert," <laughs> which is uh, was created by me. And I believe that if you go to a lot of film festivals, if you go to Q and As, there uh, there's always somebody who asks a question to the panelists. And I believe that Ulrich, you and Liz are just as good experts as anyone. You guys have made multiple feature films. You've worked on multiple projects over the years. So I always come up with a question that uh, I believe an expert such as yourself would be able to answer. And they tend to be fairly simple and kind of straightforward. And this one is, is no different. So are you ready? I am ready. Here is your question. 
Does a bigger budget make for a better film? Yeah, I don't think it does. <laughs> I feel like more money doesn't solve all problems or really you know, the most important problems. Like the biggest problem you can have is your script being bad or your actors not being the right fit for the roles, you know? But like the more, the more, more, more money, all the money in the world won't solve those problems. I do think that like if you have, like if you're an indie movie, like let's say you're making a movie for under $200,000, if you have just like a little bit more money, like it's probably like a, pretty helpful. But if you double your budget before you start shooting, for instance, it's not all that helpful because you're going to end up paying people more, you know, because you have a little bit more budget. And then, and then in the end, like you're just going to come down to being the same budget you were at 200 in, in a lot of ways, you know, which is like one of these things I've been dealing with, like, you know, doing these budgets for potential movies is like, you know, like if you're paying people a decent rate, you know, like well, not even a decent rate, if you're paying people like an indie rate, that's not like the lowest amount possible, then like, you know, basically like a seven hundred to six hundred thousand dollar movie ends up really being the same as like a two hundred thousand dollar movie in yeah. a lot of ways. And then if you go higher than that, you know, like million over million, then you're giving like half your budget to actors. And then, you know, you're like depending on where you're if you're at a million, you're almost in the exact same place. <laughs> You know, you're because you're like half your money is going right to the actors. Then you're like at five hundred thousand dollars, and then you still have to pay people like a little bit better. And so then you're like back at the at the sub two hundred thousand dollars situation mm-hmm. again. So it feels like if you have a little bit more, where you're not getting to the point where you have to pay people a lot more, or which sounds terrible. But <laughs> I mean, obviously, we want to pay everybody better, sure, or or get big actors, and it's like you have a little bit more help. But like, other than that, it's like you need like a lot more money <laughs> to be like in a new ball. Like if you're at two, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, like then it, it's gonna feel a lot more comfortable because you're still gonna give half your your budget to actors. But like if you're at three billion you know, that's a one point five million you can put into the movie now. Suddenly. You're like, ah, I have an actual budget where I can actually pay good rates and I actually have more to do and I don't feel as squeezed. But like we've talked to guests who made five million, 10 million, 20 million dollar movies and they felt squeezed. So I feel like the squeeze is always going to be there to some extent. It's just, you know, I think you get it's a little easier the more money you have. And then if you get to to a lot more money, then it's even easier. (laughs) Yeah. It, I, I think when you when you start diving into budgets for films, you start to realize that there are there are these kind of plateaus that you reach, and you realize that the difference between a two hundred thousand dollar movie and a three hundred thousand dollar movie, although that's a hundred thousand dollars, they're typically about the same because when you start bringing in unions and things like that, there are certain amounts that you have to pay depending on how much money you have. Now, I do think that there is a belief that everybody has an iPhone or an Android or some sort of like camera in their pocket. And that with this camera, you can go out and you can shoot a film. And you can, but the idea that you can do it for no money or you just have this stuff kind of laying around, 
I, I really, as I, I'm getting a little bit older and crotchetier, I, I'm believing that fallacy less and less. I, I, you know, can you make something? Absolutely, you certainly could. You would have to get a bunch of your friends to commit to do it for, you know, a period of time. And I'm speaking as a guy who made a movie for $1,000. Now, it took six years for me to make that movie because I had to work with other people's schedules and I had to, I had to call in all favors. But also, the large majority of the people who were doing the heavy lifting was I was trying to create an an atmosphere where people would just walk in, pick up the equipment, and then we would go. Which we were able to do, but because of time constraints and stuff, we didn't really have a lot of lighting time. We didn't really have a lot of grip or electrical. We didn't have a lot of those things. And the unfortunate thing, when you turn on the movie, you turn on any movie or any TV show these days, because the technology has gotten so incredible, Audiences now kind of expect amazing cinematography. They kind of expect that to be the, the, the floor in which we begin. And so if you're doing it on an ultra low budget, if you have a really cool idea or a really cool story, that is absolutely free. That's true. But I think in order to catch people's attention, you really do need to have a certain know-how. You need to have a, a good amount of equipment. And I think you have to have a certain artistic eye. And if this is your first project, you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes that won't look very good on the screen. So I think you the idea of making a no budget feature that's going to, you know, shoot you off into the the atmosphere. I kind of don't buy that. It's good to practice by all means. Practice, practice, practice with no money. So then that way, when you do get money, you know what to do with it. But I think that certainly when you're sending your shorts off or your features off to certain film festivals, one of the things they are looking for is technical prowess. They want to know, like, well, can this person frame a shot? Can this person make some make something look pretty? Can they make it look compelling? And I do think a lot of times that just takes money, time, and talent. Yeah, totally. Agreed. But I do feel like the more you can make movies and practice, the better you're going to be. Oh, sure. For sure. And I mean, Absolutely. like, you know... Like, how much do you need to practice, I guess, is a question. And I think for everybody, it's a different thing. Like, for me, like, I can't just take off time and go make a movie without, like, you know, some sort of, like, financial contribution, you know, coming in. So, I need to raise a good amount of money in order for that to happen. Because, like, you know, at $200,000 or even $300,000, like, there's not really any room or very much room for any kind of fees for for you know above the line besides talent you know yeah so it just gets really tricky but yeah i don't know it's an interesting game interesting game that we play you know that's why i feel like the weekend thing is also nice like you know because if you can do it in a way where it doesn't disrupt your life too much then that's very helpful but then if you're taking away weekends and you're less with your family yeah i don't know it's all tricky it's almost like one of one of the superpowers I feel like the, the, that the young people have is if you're in your late teens or early 20s, chances are you don't have a lot of responsibilities. Your mm-hmm. overhead is probably pretty low. And your superpower is you're good at being broke. So yeah. you don't mind eating ramen, you know, three times a day. And you, you are totally cool, you know, living in a very Spartan kind of atmosphere. Whereas when you get to be our age, yeah, you have kids and you have a mortgage and you have people that are, you know, rely on you. And yes, you need to have a certain amount of money coming in every day just to make sure that the ship doesn't sink. Yeah, totally. Exactly. I I wish I had taken the opportunity to make a low budget feature when I was younger, you know, but I I put so much pressure on myself. There's 
all this pressure you can put on yourself, Eric, as you know, like of like, oh, the first movie has to be this, and it's got to be good enough. It's got to have this kind of impact. It has to be this level budget, and blah 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 blah. And like we've seen the people who do that, and you know, sometimes it works out really really well to wait, you know. But then sometimes it's better just to go out and make it, you know, and then make another one, and then make another one, and then you can build from there. So I wish I yeah. had done that. You know? And unfortunately, I, I do think that is a thing that one is not true. And also it, it tends to be a, a, a PR fallacy, which is just the idea that this filmmaker is going to come out of nowhere, fully formed out of their chrysalis. And like every movie they make is going to be just a, a, you know, a big hitter. And it's like, that's not true at all. Like any uh, filmmaking is a craft. And of course, every time you make a movie, you get better and better and better at it. And so the filmmakers who are in their 60s who have made a, a handful of films are going to be better than a filmmaker who is 21 who has never made any film. Just right. because, you know, by, by the sheer virtue of experience, you're going to be a, a better filmmaker. And so absolutely, go make a film with nothing and go make a bunch of mistakes. Go make all the mistakes because you will learn an incredible amount. So then the next time you, you do have a couple of bucks together, you'll chance are you will make something even better than you did the first time. Yeah. Fact. Fact. Go do it, people. What you can also do is send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Tell us what you think. Are we wrong? Is it better to wait? Or is it better to just go shoot it? I want to know what you have to say about that, all the people out there. If you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which we would love. More reviews means more listeners. More listeners means more episodes. More episodes means uh, more learnings, which I like, you know? Yeah, I, I like learn- yeah, learning is good. That's the whole that's the whole reason why I did. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our editor Jeff Reimut for doing the editing as always. Thanks to our wonderful social media social media what? Person? Expert? Expert pro? Yeah. Robert Jones for doing all our social media. Thanks to you, Eric, for being our producer and for simply being awesome. And thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all on Monday. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.